Welcome to the AlphaList podcast. I am your host, Toby. AlphaList is a closed community with over 300 CTOs that share their knowledge and experience in a Slack space and at events. With this podcast, we want to give our members and interested parties insight into the thoughts and ideas of top CTOs. If you're interested in becoming a member of the community, visit alphalist.com to find out more on how to apply. This episode is kindly supported by Fastly, the biggest challenger in the CDN market. Fastly is pushing ahead the technical boundaries and is, from my perspective, the best solution on the market. Fastly is known as one of the key drivers of the Edge Cloud movement. In one of the next podcasts, I will talk to Tyler McMullen, Fastly CTO, about WebAssembly and the Edge. Well-known customers of Fastly are Shopify, The New York Times, Reddit, GitHub, and many, many more. If you want to try it all with first-class support, just go to fastly.com slash alphalist. Hello there. I'm your host, Toby, and today with me is my personal eye-opener 2019, Marty Kagan. He is a best-selling author of the book Inspired and practically the inventor of term product discovery, if I'm right. His book does what it says. It will make you feel really, really inspired. You have to listen to him for a few minutes and you realize, okay, this guy is brilliant. He's been in business for ages, founded and sold a publicly listed company to IBM, I think, acted as VP product at Netscape, and later on uh, founded the Silicon Valley product group. Marty, what do you do at the Silicon Valley product group usually? Well, uh, I'm uh, the founder, and but it's just small. We are... Um, five of us and we're all partners we all uh, are experienced heads of product basically and we we invest and advise uh, and coach uh, companies they range from startups to growth stage to several larger companies that are trying to transform and become more of a true product company I think you initially had an engineering career started and then went went to product management. So how did you get into engineering? What is your, let's say, geek path? Oh, well, I was, I mean, I got into engineering because that's what I studied in uh, university was computer science. And so I was lucky, in fact, very lucky because I, uh, well, how did I get in? My geek path was actually pretty uh very fortunate because my father was actually the the first uh, PhD in computer science in the U.S. and I he went back to school and I was just a little boy then uh, seven years old and I he taught me to program when I was seven so I learned to program before any really almost anybody else learned to program. And I thought it was fun, of course. And uh, the la there weren't many languages back then that a kid could use. Basically, it was basic, really. But um, but I, I got a chance to grow up with technology. And so I loved to program and programmed all the way and then uh, decided to study that in college. And then um, I was very lucky again because at the time I graduated, it was really the first wave of hiring engineers. 
this was before the internet, but this was desktop computing, client server computing. This was really the Microsoft era. But I got a great job at HP Laboratories. It was an applied research lab. And I got to work on uh, tools for other developers. So, uh, and that's still really one of my favorite categories of, of products. And I worked for 10 years as an engineer. And then I decided that I was interested not just in the engineering, but, uh, you know, you realize at some point, most engineers realize that uh, it only you, you want to make sure you spend your time building something that people want. And so I got very interested in, well, how do you do that? That's not something they teach you in computer science. Uh, and it, it seemed to me that it was very important, at least as important as how to engineer. And so I got very interested in the other side. For several years, I actually did both jobs, engineering lead and uh, also product management. And then I moved into more general management. But I've always loved uh, well, I still love creating and I view and my interest is not really product management. My interest is product teams. And so to me, that's product management, product design and engineering. And it's when those three come together, that's when interesting things happen. Are you sometimes still like nervous around coding or do you sometimes still do it or did you totally jump off and uh, for, for, forget that knowledge? Uh, so I... Because what I really worked on in my first 10 years was things like programming languages. I still love languages. And I, so I still follow it academically, but I don't spend my time coding anymore now. I think it makes sense to directly come to the, to the point of the, of the talks you usually do um, and also what your book is around. So like when, you, when, you, when you listen to your talks, you immediately understand that there's something missing or that there are a lot of mistakes in agile companies as of today. What do you think is, are they doing wrong? Oh, this is a big topic, of course. Um, you know, the first thing I should probably say is that there is a large percentage of the world, the agile world, which is if you include things like safe, then that, in my opinion, is nothing to do with Agile. So if you include Agile in that, then Agile is pretty much lost. And you can just give up on it. But I don't include it in Agile at all. To me, that's just marketing. They, they use the word scaled Agile framework. They use the word Agile, but there's no Agile in there at all. None of the principles that matter are there. Um, so we, if we push that aside, we're not talking about safe. We're not talking about less. Forget that stuff. That's just waterfall repackaged. Then let's talk about Agile. The biggest thing that most people don't understand is they're, they're, it's just for delivery. These are just delivery methods. Kanban, Scrum, XP, these are delivery techniques. I love them and recommend them. But they're just delivery techniques. They don't really say anything useful about how do you come up with good things to build. And that's the side that I think is uh, neglected too much. To me, every product team has to be good at both discovery and delivery. Discovery just means figure out what to build and deliver, of course, means build it. And, of course, both of those things are hard 
in uh, delivery, we care about things like scalable, reliable, fault-tolerant, performance, secure. That's hard. No, Any engineer that has ever done any non-trivial software knows that's hard. And similarly, in discovery is hard. We have four big risks. We've got to make, come up with a solution that's valuable, usable, feasible, and viable. They have to want to buy it. That's valuable. They have to figure out how to use it. That's usable. We have to know how to build it. That's feasible. And it's got to work for our business. That's viable. So those are the problems, the two sets of problems every good product team deals with. And uh, so it's discovery and delivery. It's just important to realize Agile is really about delivery. We need comparable uh, sort of philosophies and, and methodologies on the discovery side. We have lots of techniques to do delivery, agile delivery, for example, and we have lots of techniques to do discovery. Discovery basically means fake it until you make it or? That's one technique. Uh, it's not a bad technique either. That's called user prototyping. But that is one of a hundred techniques. That also seems to be like hard from the start, right? I mean, really like As an engineer, implementing something that like a layer where you can where you can test and iterate fast, um, isn't that also like at the end an implementation problem at the start? For the for the example you just gave of fake it before you make it, that's actually done without even five minutes of an engineer's time. That's done by the designers uh, using totally different tooling. Now, there are some other cases where we do need engineers' help, but not on that. We can do the fake it before you make it for – we can do 100 iterations in a week, and then we can go to the engineers and say, this is what we need to build. Okay. And you do it with tools like Figma or – Yeah, Figma, Envision. There's actually many tools today that do this. It's And these are tools for designers – to help them do a certain class of prototyping uh, that's used for product discovery. And then you test with real users you got in your database or? Yeah, you I mean, there's different kinds of testing also. Uh, sometimes we test, lots of times we test with users and customers. Remember, they're not always the same the person who buys and the person who uses. Uh, so we test with them. We also test with. Uh, internal users a lot. It's like customer service. We test with our own executives like our lawyer and our salespeople to make sure that the solution works for them as well. Uh, and frankly, we test with all our engineers because we need to make sure two things. Number one, they could build this. It's something that they feel like they know how to build. And number two, they often will know a better way to solve the problem because they know the underlying technology. So before real users, you test with, with your team first or like your whole company? Yeah, I mean, there, there, there isn't an, an enforced order, but depending on the problem you're working on, but one way or another, you want to make sure that your developers get it, your customers get it, your stakeholders get it before you ask the engineers to spend the time to build a scalable implementation. Yeah, makes sense. But maybe there's like an, an intermediate path. If you, let's say, you, you did some tests um, and you then are sure that you want to implement it, then um, there's a thing that you usually call MVP. Um, does that make sense at all to, to like do like a, 
like a half scalable thing? Well, so MVP is what I just, there's a lot of confusion about MVP. The one you just described is worthless. That is worthless because we can do the exact same thing in hours. There's no reason to do that half-baked thing. Some people call that the four-month MVP. That's a waste of time. We can Any skilled product team can do much better than that. But when I described all those user prototypes I was just describing you know, that you can create with Figma, those are all MVPs. Every one of them is an MVP. Remember MVP, it's meant to be the smallest test you can do to test out some idea. And we can do that in hours. We don't need to do it in months. This is just a sign of an amateur team where they basically ask their engineers to build out all their MVPs. Might might sound scary to uh, uh, some of the CTOs uh, that are potentially listening here, right? <laughs> I mean, well, then I would encourage them to read the book Inspired or really to talk to any modern product team. <laughs> it's not, it's really not hard what I'm describing. So, if you're like provocative, you you would say. Because there are a lot of companies that start with delivery, um, that they should all change their minds, right? Well, look, every product thing we work on has different amount of risk. If it's something that's easy, that you're just certain this is going to be fine, it's not going to be the customers are going to use it or buy it. It's going to be usable. It's going to be something we can build. It's going to be something that works for our business. Then by all means, just put it on the backlog and build the damn thing. But I have never in, in 35 years of working with tech companies, I have never seen that for a real product. It's never that easy. So the answer is yes. <laughs> it makes never sense, I think. Yeah. But still, like 90% of the companies do it, right? Well, I mean, another way of saying that is why is it that 90% of product efforts fail? Yeah, good question. Why? <laughs> It's the same answer. <laughs> okay. And um, they don't know what they're doing. They really don't know what they're doing. So if you fail in discovery, it's not even considered failure. It's just considered learning. If you actually use your engineers to build out a commercial product and ship it and it fails, that's failure. Because now we've really wasted those engineers. And, you know, you could say, well, it was only two months. But look at what those engineers could have been doing for the last two months. Right. Obvious. Um, and if you want to want to like really then test it with a bit more scale, is there are there methods as well? I mean, I can can imagine like a Figma prototype, um, it, like it doesn't necessarily make sense to send it to twenty thousand users, or is it? No, no, you can't generally. So that's not the purpose of a user prototype. The because you started with this idea of fake it before you make it. That's referred to as a user prototype. Those are not meant to send traffic to. Those are meant for qualitative learning, which is awesome, by the way, but not that. We have another kind of technique. We have a couple other techniques for the case where we need to collect data. We need to actually send 20,000 people to it in order to see. That's called a live data prototype. That's a different set of technology. That's a different uh, set of techniques. But that's what it's for uh, because sometimes you really need real data. 
not just 10 or 20, but you need 100,000 or 200,000 data points. And so that's what that's for. There's, uh, I didn't say this yet, but there's four major kinds of prototypes that modern product teams need to know. And so far, we've just touched on two of them, but there are four that every good product team needs to know because there are many different situations. Like we said, the risk profiles are often different. Okay, so in in which four? Well, user prototypes are the the most common. Live data prototypes are the second. Um, Feasibility prototypes are the third. Feasibility are the ones most engineers are most familiar with because those are the oldest. Uh, and But they're still very popular. There's teams doing them right now around machine learning technology. But feasibility prototypes are meant to see, can we figure out how to solve this technically? Uh, and then the last kind of prototype is a hybrid prototype, which is um, – which. I mentioned before, there's the risk profile of value, usability, feasibility, viability. When you narrow down that to whatever the subset is, a hybrid prototype addresses just the specific risks that we have. And those are usually built with a combination of the other three kinds of prototypes. But... um, yeah, those are the four. They're they're all doc. You know, if you do read that book, they're all talked about in depth, and there's examples for all of them. But any good product team really needs to know how to do all four of those. Okay, and any good product team consists of which roles? Well, typical product team: product manager, real product manager, not a project manager, uh, product designer, and again, I mean a real product designer. These are people that are trained in service design, interaction design, visual design, and user research. They're very valuable. And then, of course, a minimum of two, usually a maximum of 10 or 12 engineers. Uh, That's a typical product team. Uh, The main exception to that is if it's a platform team working on infrastructure, then you wouldn't have the designer. Uh, You would have a platform product manager and some number of engineers. But that's the basic product team right there. Okay. And that team does all the prototyping and like no real implementation then? No, I didn't say no. This every product team does product discovery and product, and product delivery. delivery. So it's mixed. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So the engineers, it, it's it's we're all doing both of those, but in practice, the product manager and designer spend most of their day doing discovery work, and the engineers spend a little of their day doing discovery work mostly playing with those prototypes that the designer created. And then similarly, the engineers spend most of their day doing delivery work. And the product manager and designers spend a little bit of time answering the questions that come up in once a team is actually building, especially doing QA. They will often find use cases that weren't considered and the product manager designer need to address those. So, um, But those are going on constantly. Okay. And in your last sentence, uh, one of your last sentences, you referred to the the, the um, uh, product manager um, and uh, differentiate between product manager and project manager. Um, if I hire a, a product owner or product manager, should I rather hire an industry expert or someone who's just very good in stakeholder management? Um, 
Well, neither uh, is what you're looking for, because um, neither of them are the product manager job. So just to be clear, product owner is just the role on an agile team. Uh, it's a minor responsibility. The job is product manager, which is a much bigger responsibility. So the person with the title product manager typically does the product owner role, just like one of the engineers or the engineering manager does the scrum master role usually. Um, that's that's just uh, administrative. So that's not really very interesting. So then the question is, what do you look for when you're looking for a real product manager? And the point is, if, if it's an empowered product team, you do need a very capable person. If it's just a feature team where they're just given a bunch of features on a roadmap to build, you don't need a product manager. You need a project manager. So, but if it's a empowered product team and they are given problems to solve, then you need somebody who understands the customers, understands the data, understands the different dimensions of the business and understands the industry. And that's what a product manager brings. So comparable to an entrepreneur at the end, right? In a way. In fact, it's very similar to an entrepreneur. And uh, just like if, if, if you and I were to do a startup together, um, one of us would probably take responsibility for the value of the product and the viability of the product. And then we'd have a designer for the usability and the engineer for um, the feasibility. That's very common to what we do in a product team. Product manager is responsible for value and viability. Okay, thanks. Yeah. Um, and let's say I've, I've hired like really good product manager or I am a good product manager myself. Then um, like a lot of companies have roadmaps. Uh, what, what do you think about roadmaps? I mean, does it make sense? Just like you said before, 90% of companies are not very good. Um, you know, and I'm not exaggerating. That's true. 90% of tech product companies are not very good. Uh, and by the way, that, that number applies whether we're in Berlin or San Francisco or New York or Shanghai. Uh, there's, and this really bothers me why there aren't more, but consistently the best companies whether we're talking Spotify or Slack or um, or Netflix or Google or Amazon or Apple, they, they really are in that 10%. And I don't think it's an accident. They are the ones that are working like we're talking about here. And that's what we're trying to replicate and try to get more companies to do. But um, yeah, there's a lot of reasons why it can be hard. And like, if I don't have a roadmap then, How do I manage my stakeholders and communicate my progress? Is that? I mean, yeah, you're, I mean, you're talking just like a feature team. That's how they think of it is like, where's my roadmap? How do I manage my stakeholders? Like, that's your purpose. And of course, that's not our purpose. Our purpose is to actually come up with solutions that our customers love, but work for our business. And that's what a product team does. So roadmaps give you a, a list, a prioritized list of features. And uh, the difference is what we, well, I mean, this gets into a long discussion about why roadmaps are so damaging. But let me just say, in a good product company, rather than being given these features to build, you're given these problems to solve. That's the difference. 
So in, and in fact, you probably know, this is where OKRs came from. OKRs came from those 10% of companies I was talking about that, uh, that have empowered teams. And the idea is you're giving, you're giving companies problems, teams problems to solve rather than features to build. So OKRs are supposed to be the alternative to roadmaps. Of course, if you just take OT, OKRs and put them on top of feature teams, it's just a big waste of time. Thanks a lot to our sponsor, the About You Cloud. The About You Cloud offers a full-stack e-commerce solution as a service that runs on exactly the same infrastructure as About You does. It is mobile-first, can act as headless system, event-driven, can be fully localized and is super integratable into existing solutions. Besides that, it is designed and developed by a really smart CTO and friend of mine, Sebastian Betts, who also did the first Alphalist podcast with me. About You has set up a task force for retailers and brands that want to be quick in the COVID situation. This task force will help you with the launch of your shop as well as with fulfillment, marketing, support and internationalization. Simply write to hello at aboutyou.com to be supported by this task force. What do you think how autonomous uh, those modern product teams should be? I guess very autonomous if you look at the Spotify model, for example. Yeah, I mean, autonomy is a tricky word because uh, the word that most people really mean is how empowered should they be. Empowered means that the team is able to figure out the best way to solve the problems they've been asked to solve. Autonomous means the team has everything they need in order to solve that problem. Now, Autonomy is one of those things that nobody really at scale, nobody has full autonomy. So for, you depend on other teams, you depend on platform services, or you depend on AWS, you depend on all kinds of things. So it's very rare to be fully autonomous, but we do want to maximize for autonomy. We want the team to be as autonomous as possible, but the real key is not autonomy. The real key is empowerment. And um, like stepping back to autonomy, sometimes some people are also struggling with um, having having too much autonomy or not not like a, not not enough guidance. Isn't that the case? It's very rare, but it is true. Uh, and Spotify for early years of Spotify was an example of that. Um, And so was early at Google, too, actually. Too much autonomy. And teams are like, well, what do you really need me to do? Um, so it's – but when I say it's rare, this is uh, a good problem to have, in my opinion, because we can fix that very easily. All we need is the leaders to start doing their job. That's what we need. <laughs> So your CTO, where is your CTO? Your head of product, where is your head of product? If they are doing their job, you won't have that problem with teams feeling like, uh, I don't know what to do. Um, and how can you get around people in engineering and, and uh, so product and delivery being very defensive? I, I've, I've seen that a lot, um, and I guess you too, um, that they sometimes have the, um, challenges with taking risks. Um, how can you solve that? Well, this gets to culture, really. We want the teams to be able to take risks, but we want them to do it smart. If that team tells me, oh, I'm going to have my engineers build this MVP, it's going to take two months, 
then I would say that is not being smart at taking risks. That is being irresponsible. You're going to be wasting that time and money. And, you know, a lot of startups don't have that much time and money. So we have to be smart about how we take risks. And then we have to uh, understand, you know, how, how and when to take those risks. Uh, a lot of people frame the whole product discussion about risk management. In fact, I started by talking about delivery risks and discovery risks. So risk is normal, but we have to be smart about how we tackle that risk. Understood. Um, and if you if you look at companies out there taking risks, I, th I think you've seen a lot. Um, and um, like two companies that are very different from their their product approach, I think. Um, in terms of like visual stuff versus quantitative stuff, uh, Apple and Google, um, how how do you think um, are they? Do they differ um, in their in their um, perspective on product management? Well, so those are two good examples because in many cultural ways they're opposites. Like you said, they they feel like opposites in so many ways. Um, you walk into one office, you go into the other office, it feels very different. But um, in in the important ways, in my opinion, they feel the same. And when I say that, both of them set the dial on empowered product teams very high. Both of them believe in the power of empowered product teams. Now, one of them has a culture that values the qualitative much higher, that's Apple, and the other one has a culture that values the quantitative much higher, that's Google. What neither of them talk about very publicly is that both of them also do the other. Apple also does quantitative testing. And, and Google also does lots of qualitative testing. They've been doing it for even longer than they've been doing the quantitative. But culturally, you know, there is that preference. But to me, that is secondary. The primary is they're empowered teams. They are both given hard problems to solve, and they're given the skills people needed to solve it. Okay. And giving people hard problems to solve is essentially what, what drives intrinsic motivation, right? Every good person I know, that's what they want to do. There was a great Steve Jobs quote, which is, you know, we don't hire all these smart people to tell them what to do. We hire all these smart people so they can show us what's possible. Yeah. So, um, ideally you're, you're hiring, uh, the, the better engineers than yourself, right? Yeah, but I want to. This is also a common misunderstanding. People think that Apple and Google have, you know, when you that when you go in there, you're going to find these engineers that are so much better than other places, and it's really not the case. I mean, they both have some excellent people. They also both have some not very excellent people. That is no secret. The difference is. Both of those companies provide an environment that normal people can do great work. And to me, that is the most important key to them, to their success. So that means a lot of self-service tools where you can spin up everything you need um, and, and, yeah, simply empowerment, right? 
It's empowerment. That's right. It means you're going to give people the tools they need and let them and give them as much degree of freedom, right? When you give them a roadmap, how much can they do? And if it doesn't work, you can't blame them because they didn't want to build that in the first place. But if you give them problems to solve, they own it. Okay. Um, doesn't it get harder to give people problems to solve? I mean, um, we talked about viability versus feasibility. Um, and like from my today's perspective, um, the job of an engineer gets more of the, the job of an integrator, um, integrating a lot of SaaS tools um, into into one big mesh. Um, does that mean that um, like in a few years from now, we will potentially have more more product people than real engineers because you can stick everything together with Zapier and then you ship it? Um, is that will, will the, the future look like that? I don't think so. Uh, you might be just dealing with some uh, SaaS integration headaches right now. But there is, you know, I mean, there's no question that the level of abstraction keeps rising. The services that are available in places like Google Cloud and AWS today are so much better than they were even a few years ago. But that just means that our engineers can focus on the solution level, on the application level innovation. And look at, you know, look at what's going on. Look at Google Translate, how much better that is than it's ever been, for example. Um, and that is, uh, to me, that, so that's where, that's where it's going. The solutions will continue to get better, bigger. I don't see that dynamic changing that much. I think there will be engineers continually writing at higher and higher levels of abstraction. Sure. Um, but I, you know, it may, at some point, who knows, it's hard to predict more than about 10 years out, but I'm pretty confident that for the next 10 years, we're going to have designers, developers, and product managers solving hard okay. problems. <laughs> You know, but you're right. It is harder for the leaders to give the to empower teams than it is just to give pass along a roadmap from a bunch of stakeholders. Mm -hmm. So the key to a great product company, honestly, are the leaders. And when I say the product leaders here, I mean the head of technology, usually a CTO, head of head of product management, usually a chief product officer and the head of design, those three leaders especially. How do you think about um, a conflict I've seen a few times uh, that the, the head of product reports to the CTO? Is that correct or is it is it stupid? Or is that, does it make, or does it? It's, first of all, it's not that common. It's about the same amount of common as sometimes the CTO reports to the head of product. But neither of those are, so, so here's the thing. We all have to pick our battles. Is it ideal? Not really, because those two jobs are really the two hardest jobs in the product space, right? Head of technology, head of product. Those are two incredibly hard jobs. If one person reports to the other, it might just be because the CEO doesn't have the time or the interest. It might be fine. I've seen cases where it's fine. I've also seen cases where it was terrible because what happened was, well, here I'll give one example where the CPO, the chief product officer, had the head of technology, it wasn't called the CTO, it was just VP of engineering, reported to that person. The problem was, 
the, that chief product officer did not really understand engineering. And eventually that head of engineering left because he felt he could not get his job done there. That, that was really avoidable. That head of technology should have been a peer to that person. And I think it would have been better for that company because that was a good person that left. But sometimes it's fine. It's just not, you know, we're talking on the margin here. Normally, the head of product and the head of technology both report up to the, the CEO or the general manager. And like one also common problem I've, I've seen a few times is that um, you have the founder um, who maybe has brilliant ideas, maybe not. Um, And um, you then have a lot of stuff that um, uh, isn't tested for viability and uh, potentially the sales team also, um, like every once in a while, sells something and says, okay, that has to be ready by the end of next week without doing any tests or like incorporating any product management. Um, how do you change the order of these things? How do you change the, the, the nature of such a company? Is it cultural only or... Well, I would separate one thing. It's totally normal that the um, one of the founders uh, thinks they have great ideas. They might have great ideas. They might not. But they always think they have great ideas. So that's given as long as that founder's there. And that's not necessarily a problem at all. The problem is it wasn't that in your scenario. The problem was you described an organization that has no product organization. All it had was engineers. So these ideas were going straight to engineers to build. Now, there may be people called product managers, but all uh, if all they are is facilitating a roadmap and playing project manager, then that's not a product organization. So a good product organization will be able to try out these product ideas, whether they're good or bad, very quickly. And it's only the good ones that actually get on a backlog. Let's assume I, I want to launch a new product. Um, I, I'm in the music space. I'm a, I'm a founder. I have a product team. How do I get them to, to, to look at the right um, competitive, competitive edge? How do I do competitor research? Um, how do I get innovative at all um, if I'm in that space where there are competitors that like Spotify or Deezer, things I, or companies which I could just copy? How how do I start really seeing the, the the difference and really seeing 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 the long list of competitors? Well, I mean, normally uh, normally when we start, there is a founder with some passion about solving a problem. Uh, it it's it's rarely that they just say, "I want to be in the music space." They say, "I've been in the music space. I don't like these." Or DJs have no good technology. It's terrible, and I really want to fix that. So they are very passionate about a problem, and and part of that obviously is they've looked at other competitors. They looked at what what's available. They've talked to a hundred different DJs, and they realize that. There is a real need here and nobody seems to be caring about it. I'm going to care about that. That's usually where most products come from, something like that. Uh, and certainly whoever's playing the product role needs to understand the competitive landscape. That's part of this one of the four big responsibilities of the product leader. So no question. 
But uh, more importantly, they're going to have to get that team to really understand what needs to be done and what the enabling technology is. And this is where great products come from, is you combine real need, like DJs that have terrible software, let's say, with, um, with technology that can solve that. But I mean, in reality, yes, you start seeing a problem and then you realize, okay, okay this or that company does something similar. I mean, a music service is maybe a bad example because it's obvious that they exist. Um, but in other spaces, you usually find competitors that, that are similar. Still, it's in a way very hard to, 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 to really distill out the, the innovative things and, and, uh, and features they might have, right? Well, first of all, you know, when Spotify started, there were lots of other music services. Do you remember Pandora? Um, but the difference was Spotify felt that they could solve that problem much better than others. And I would argue they largely have, certainly much better than Pandora. Pandora did everything wrong. Spotify did almost everything right. So, so there's, so it doesn't bother. In fact, most VCs I know, investors, don't like it if you don't have competitors. They worry that if there are not major competitors out there today, then there's probably not a market. There's not enough people that care enough about it. Um, but so having competitors is not a problem. So you have to first decide, you know, who are you going to help? And then once you've decided who you're going to help, that sort of defines your market. And now you have to look at how are you going to solve that better than anybody else? Or, and not only just better, but better enough to get people to switch to you. Uh, so look at all the people that switch to Spotify or look at all the people that switch to Slack just because they felt Slack was so much better. That's, you know, and, and these are all crowded spaces when they got in there. Or look at all the people, you might not remember this, but I do certainly do, like switch to Google. Google was like not even close to, they weren't even an early search engine. They were a late comer to that market. Uh, in fact, most people thought it, it was already too many players in the search market. And then Google came along and the main difference was it was so much better. Just like Slack, so much better. Just like the iPhone, so much better. And I would argue Spotify, so much better. Yeah, obviously. And yeah, sometimes the, the late followers then uh, obviously have no chance, right? Um, or just push in like money to the market um, and, and flood it through that, right? Well, again, all those examples I just gave were late followers. They weren't fast followers. Spotify, iPhone, those were not, fa or Google, they were late followers. The difference is, They solved that problem better than all the others that were out there so far. You just mentioned one, one common problem that VCs often want competition to exist. They often want you to, to also follow in a, in a category that already exists. How, how do you define a category? Um, I, I imagine that's a very, very, very hard thing to do, right? I mean, some people get really wrapped up in it. Um, but honestly, 
at its heart, it's not that big a deal. You need to find people that have a problem that that you can solve for them. When you find those people, they are in a market segment and will look closer at how those people are different from other people. Uh, and that's called segmentation. But that is, it's uh, the bigger issue is find somebody that really has a serious problem that you can help them with. You know what? If you can do that, you're already in the top 10%. Okay. And then naming that category follows automatically. Yeah, you'll figure that out. The other thing that happens if you really solve it well is you will redefine the category. I have one more question for you, um, uh, which is hopefully not uh, too personal. Um, I just found a very, very old uh, dusty laptop um, in my attic. Um, and it contained a very special time machine release of uh, the Netscape browser that I think you invented uh, back then um, in your time at, at Netscape. And um, I opened the location bar and type in 1996. And then we slowly travel back. So you remember that like slowly spinning N um, uh, in the into your Netscape time. Uh, and uh, well, before we travel back to, to the current time, You had the chance to whisper something into into young Marty's ears. What what is it? Just for the record, I didn't work on the browser. I worked on the platform technology. So, but I did know the browser teams well. They were great. What would I say? Well, I'd certainly say buy Google is one one thing I would say. So, uh, because it was actually early Netscape people that made the first investments at Google, and uh, and I and I I. Uh, I was introduced to Larry and Sergey just when they were a few people, and I uh, wish I had thought enough to uh, to to join them. But no, and seriously, I think I would have said enjoy it because that was so much fun. Uh, working in Netscape during those years was the most fun I've ever had. Um, it was literally the birth of the internet industry, so I was in a great place at a perfect time, and so. Um, Yeah, I, I would say enjoy it. Okay, thanks, Marty. It was really fun talking to you, um, like a lot of uh, eye-opening topics. And uh, I really hope that uh, we can welcome you in the future when COVID is finally over um, in Hamburg at our conference. So thanks a lot, Marty. Me too. Thank bye you bye. very much. Bye-bye. Thanks again to our sponsors, Fastly and the About You Cloud. If you want to get first-class support by Fastly, just go to fastly.com slash alphalist. And if you want to launch your shop and get first-class support by About You, just write an email to hello at aboutyou.com to be supported by their task force. 